I opened last week's Moving Back to America episode called Putin in Prison by showing a picture of Putin sitting at the end of a very, very long table with his advisors way, way down on the other side. Uh, whether or not this telegraphed the uh, image of strength that Putin must telegraph at all times remains uncertain. A lot of people were talking about that photograph, and very shortly after we published that episode last week, a photo was released of Putin shoulder to shoulder with a group of, uh, I think, flight attendant prospective candidates. You see, he's not afraid to get close to people. Here's your video proof. It's pretty ham-handed propaganda, but when you really get down to it, ham-handed is basically what this guy is all about. And in all the discussions of what Vladimir Putin is going to do next, no one seems to be talking about what Vladimir Putin did before. Who is this guy? Who is he? Who is he? What is he made of? Because the reason I'm so interested in history is because my job to predict the future. Uh, now, the laws of thermodynamics say that's not exactly possible, but if you're looking backwards and you see the wake is leading due south, then chances are the boats go north. So let's look at the history of Vladimir Putin in an attempt to understand how his mind functions and what the potential outcome of the adventure in the Ukraine will be. Vladimir Putin attempted to join the KGB when he was 16 years old. They didn't accept him at age 16, but he went back a couple years later, and this time he did. He did some local work in Leningrad for a while, took some extra training, and then they sent him to East Germany. From 1985 to 1990, Vladimir Putin was stationed in Dresden, East Germany, site of a major Allied firebombing during World War II, which I'm sure the locals hadn't forgotten. But during this time, as the Soviet Union began to essentially just drop dead of hardening of the arteries, a biographer of Putin said that all the KGB really had to do back in that time was essentially just collect press clippings. There was no real spying going on. The life was bleeding out of the Soviet Union. But if you wonder how Vladimir Putin can somehow think that it's possible to occupy and subdue a country like Ukraine, you might want to think about the fact that for five years, he was part of the effort to occupy and subdue the country of East Germany, and that went on for quite a long time. After he left East Germany in 1990, he went back to Leningrad, and he was basically unemployed. He was looking for a job, and as it turned out, he found one. And this first connection to politics is what essentially set up his entire career. Arriving in Leningrad, soon to be St. Petersburg, uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union in the following year, but in 1990, when Putin arrived in Leningrad, he went looking for a job with the mayor. He went right to the top. The mayor of Leningrad at the time was named Antoly Sobchak. And Sobchak was, even by Russian standards, a flamboyantly corrupt individual. But Vladimir Putin had exactly the skills that Sobchak was looking for. He was dedicated, he was thorough, he was a hard worker, and as Sobchak was soon to find out, he was extraordinarily loyal. Now, in these very early days, at the very end of the Soviet Union, the very beginning of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, if you wanted to do business, meaning a Western company, if you wanted to do business in what would soon become St. Petersburg in order to do business there. It's a big market. You had to get permission from Antoly Subject, which meant you had to pay him. And if you paid him, then he would say, oh, terrific. Talk to Vlad, and he'll straighten it out for you. 
Vladimir Putin became the point man for every single Western transaction that happened in St. Petersburg. Subcheck would approve it. He'd take his cut. But it was Putin who did the actual groundwork in terms of how do these corporations come into the country and how do we get a piece of them. During this time, Putin was put in charge of a relief program that the, the situation in now St. Petersburg was desperate. People were hungry, again, at the end of the Soviet Union. And $93 million in food aid was promised by the government. The $93 million was paid out of the tax coffers, but the food aid never arrived. Somewhere around this time, Putin and some of his other uh, associates started building villas in Spain, and, uh, and Anatoly Sobchak continued to get richer and richer and richer. And then something happened that really defines not only how Putin became president of the Russian Federation, but also says an awful lot about the makeup of this guy. Before he moved to Moscow, while there was still semblance of a free press in this nascent trying-to-be-free Russia after the Soviet Union, there were a number of investigative reports and official investigations as well into the unbelievable, almost unparalleled corruption of Subcheck. And during that time, and especially after Subcheck was forced out of office, Vladimir Putin made sure that none of those investigations ever got any traction. And what that did was it established his relationship among the kleptocracy that was evolving as a guy who would be loyal and who would protect your ass if things got hot. That's exactly why he was hired by Boris Yeltsin when he went to Moscow. Now, somewhere in here, Putin realized that he was going to become a public figure. He certainly had the ambitions to become the public figure, but he was a, a, a gray entity. Like, I think it was Trotsky who said that Stalin was a gray blur during the early years. Like Stalin, and undoubtedly learning from his example, Putin understood that the way to power in the Soviet system and the later Russian system was to stay low, do your job effectively, take care of the boss, and then Put your own people into key positions and do it as unobtrusively as possible. That's exactly how Stalin came to power. It's exactly how Putin came to power, too. But as he began to realize, we've got these election things now, and unlike the Soviet Union, you don't get to walk into a voting booth, be handed a ballot with the box already checked, and only one candidate on the ballot. Uh, Putin realized he, he would have to do something to improve his image, essentially. And, you know, that's actually a, not exactly the way to put it. It, he didn't do something to improve his image. He didn't have an image. He did something to create an image. Out of his own pocket, he paid for a documentary outlining his entire life up to that point. He simply hired somebody to write a story about who he was, and then he went out and filmed it. And this was presented to the Russian people and didn't make a whole big impression. But once he got to Moscow, things changed. He came to the Kremlin in 1996, highly recommended by the kleptocracy back in St. Petersburg. And just like the mayor of St. Petersburg, the president of the Russian Federation at the time, Boris Yeltsin, was involved in so many corruption scandals that it literally was impossible to keep track of them all. Yeltsin hired Putin because Yeltsin understood that Putin would be loyal to him, would protect him, would run the scam, 
and he could be counted on to not sell out the boss when it was time for the boss to go home. And that's exactly what happened. In 1997, Yeltsin appointed Putin to be the deputy chief of the presidential staff, again, like Stalin, who took the essentially garbage position of secretary general of the Communist Party and turned it into a power source. Yeltsin had the ability now from Moscow to start picking people and putting his own people who were beholden to him into systems of power. The next year, in 1998, Yeltsin gave him a promotion. He made him president of the Federal Security Services, the FSB, which is, of course, the successor to the KGB. And Vladimir Putin, who wanted to join the KGB at age 16, now found himself in charge of the entire operation. Now, it was in the following year, 1999, that Vladimir Putin suddenly became more than just a gray face in the background of official photos. In 1999, Putin finally broke out. And here's how he did it. During that year, there were a number of bombings in Moscow, entire apartment complexes falling down, much like the one did in Oklahoma City. Just sheared off, hundreds of people killed, again and again and again and again and again, scattered throughout Moscow. And this time, Vladimir Putin said, this is, the, this is all the fault of the Chechens, and we're going to track these murderers down, and we'll kill them in the toilet. We'll shoot them on the way to the toilet. They will not escape. There's no escape for these people. And this is exactly what the citizens of Moscow and the citizens of the Russian Federation wanted to hear. Somebody was going to go out there and get revenge for these mass murders. Now, in a documentary produced by Frontline back in early 2000s, I want to say, a number of authors have made the claim that in one of these apartment buildings, a caretaker had stumbled upon a bomb that had not yet exploded. And when police forces and military forces got a look at that bomb, they realized that the bomb was not some makeshift assembly done by a bunch of ragtag rebels out in Chechnya that this was using the very highest grade of military explosives and that while no Chechens had been seen coming in and out of the building prior, some members of the FSB had been. It is possible to make a credible case that Vladimir Putin engineered these bombings, blamed it on the Chechens, and did it so that he could appear to be the strong man that Russia was waiting for after years of doddering, tottering, unable to walk to the podium, he's so drunk, Boris Yeltsin. Whether he was responsible for the bombings or not, that very same year, 1999, he assumed the office of acting president, which I don't think has ever really existed before. But his very first presidential decree, as he took over and as Boris Yeltsin left the stage, was a presidential order that said, quote, Corruption charges against the outgoing president would not be pursued. Vladimir Putin, again, showing his loyalty to the people who had been loyal to him, to the people who had helped him get ahead. What he is essentially doing is he is establishing credentials for the personal network that he eventually placed in Russia. All of this, all of this is his personal connection. There's nothing about the Russian government that is a government in the way that we understand the terms. Since 1999, and probably considerably earlier, the general kleptocracy everywhere of everybody taking a little piece of what's left of the Soviet Union changed. It changed into a modern, highly streamlined 
almost KGB kind of band of banditos, as my wife puts them. Because now you had organized crime on a level that makes Al Capone look like a piker. You're not talking about running drugs or, or, or prostitutes or numbers in a city. Now you're talking about the entire economic system of what was once the only other superpower in the world becomes the private domain of one man. And this one man maintains his control over that empire through simple patronage. It's that simple. Unlike Stalin, he didn't have to kill millions and millions of people to keep everybody terrorized. All he had to do was keep the money flowing. And that's exactly what happened. Money flowed into the military. And the Russian military, the Soviet Navy, had been literally rusting away on the docks. It's not an exaggeration. Submarines, nuclear submarines, simply turning to rust on the docks because there was no money to pay for them. He re-injects money into the military, and that wins him some support. He re-injects prestige into the security services, former head of the uh, Federal Security Service, so that wins him some support. But mostly, all of these deals that happen as the result of international commerce go directly through him and through his shadow companies, of which he peels off a significant portion, in some cases 94% or something. The rest goes to the cronies who then administrate that down to other cronies and so on, and that's how it works. Somebody wants to do business in Krasnodar, let's say, okay, in order to open that business, he's got to pay this guy. This guy pays the guy who's in charge of Krasnodar. The guy in charge of Krasnodar pays Putin. And then, as more money comes into the system, some of the benefits flow back down again. If you want to know why so many Russian oligarchs have $900 million yachts for us to impound, it's because the entire economy of the country doesn't exist as either private sector or public sector. It's both, and it's neither. Even as early as somewhere in the vicinity of 2008, 9, 10, somewhere in there, a few Russian journalists tried to estimate how much money Vladimir Putin personally had. And the number they came up with at least 10 years ago was $40 billion. That number's enormously higher by now. But 10 years ago, $40 billion made him the 16th richest person in the world. So all of this to say that you cannot understand the end game in Ukraine if you don't understand the kind of person that Putin is, how he got there, and what his power structure is. So let's just close by looking at that. Unlike Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev or any of the others, Vladimir Putin doesn't have a functioning communist party, an ideological base that at least has the fig leaf of political ideology to cover its rapaciousness. That doesn't exist anymore. The only thing that exists is the actual connections, the actual money flow. And now, in the wake of the catastrophe in the Ukraine, which he absolutely believed would be a two- or three-day affair, and furthermore, which he sold to his cronies that basically make up his government as a two- or three-day affair, increasing Russian prestige, increasing Russian access to resources, which would then flow to him and through him down to his upper levels of cronies, who would flow it down to their next levels of cronies, and all the rest, the entire system. The move into the Ukraine was designed to increase the cash flow. And he was convinced that after two or three days, this would be over, and the West would yell and scream and huff and puff and write strongly worded letters. And after a year or two, it would blow over, as it always has. 
and he would be even wealthier. And at the same time as that criminal motive, there also existed the ideological motive of the KGB man, the ideological motive of the man who thought and continues to think to this day that Ukraine is not a sovereign country. It's a, it, it's a republic that belongs to the Soviet Union, that these are Russian-speaking people who have, been, who have been invaded by the West ideologically and turned against Mother Russia, their brothers and sisters. He sees this as a defensive maneuver against Western aggression. That's how he looks at it as a KGB guy, as a kleptocrat. It's just another spigot of money for him. But if his entire power structure is predicated on pushing money out to the hundreds of people who actually run Russia, then these sanctions are not just sanctions because sanctions hurt poor people. Sanctions hurt regular citizens. Sanctions close small businesses. Sanctions cause the price of food to, to rise. It's not a problem for you if you have $60 billion in personal assets and all of the people who are making these decisions to annex these territories, still have their $900 million yachts and all the rest that that entails, that's not a problem for them then. But now, now, those yachts have been impounded. Those funds have been frozen. All of the money that runs this system has been cut off. And Vladimir Putin's sole power base now is not only not getting the money that they thought they were going to get. They're not getting any money at all. And even more impressive is the fact that the money that they did get is essentially gone. So his main power base is hurting, continues to hurt, and knows that the only way that they can get the juice flowing again is for this guy to leave the scene. The Russian military has been embarrassed by this. So if you think about that second power structure of his, all of the generals, all of these people, all the guys wearing all the medals, all the guys saying, oh, Russia's going to show the world, we're going to scare them, we're going to take this over. They're not only not frightening the West, they are embarrassing themselves. And they get more embarrassed every day that this goes on, every day that Kiev holds out, every day that the Ukrainians continue to fight. Russian Military officials, the generals who basically back this entire play, are realizing that they have been laughed at, mocked, that they're failing. They've got a 40-mile-long convoy that runs out of gas and has flat tires. They've got soldiers on the Internet talking about how they were lied to to get into this battle. And so what does Putin have left? All he has left is fear. If I had to predict, I would say that he will be out of power shortly. I would be surprised if he lasts into the summer, and frankly, I would be surprised if he lasts much longer than a month or two, and I would not be surprised if the news came tomorrow that he had been shown the door. And this is where we end up with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, half KGB, half Russian gangster, made this invasion predicated on a belief that was put into his head in Leningrad and as a boy who wanted to join the KGB at age 16, that this was the way the world worked, that these countries, Ukraine, Belarus, and all the rest of them were Russian.
and you can look at what happens in the Ukraine today. This is how I look at it. It is the last spasm, the last dying gasp of communism. 